paper men meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people I have known. For I meet politicians and grafters by the score. Killers plain and fancy, it's really quite a bore. Oh, newspaper men meet such interesting people. They wallow in corruption, crime and gore. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, city desk. Pull the press, pull the press. Extra, extra, read all about it. It's a mess meets the test. Oh, newspaper men meet such interesting people. It's wonderful to represent the press. The Media Project is a half hour of commentary and analysis on media issues of the week. I'm Rex Smith, editor of the Times Union, here with my colleagues, starting by way of introduction, Dr. Alan Chartok, the CEO of Northeast Public Radio. How are you doing, Rex? So far, so good. You know, we'll see. The day is young. I could still screw it up entirely, and it could go bad, you know? This is the way you have to take the day. We uh, turn to uh, Judy Patrick, vice president of the New York Press Association and former editor of the Daily Gazette. Judy, you there? I am. I'm happy. It's a beautiful time of year. If only it could last a little longer. Isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's just been terrific. We ought to all be very cheery, which brings me to Rosemary Armeo. Yes, always <laughs> Long-time investigative journalist and uh, professor at UAlbany. So are you investigative journalists are not supposed to be cheery. Aren't you supposed to be uh, yeah, uh, aggressive? The, yes, we always see the corruption and the incompetence, and it's pretty easy to see a lot of that today. Yes, there's a lot of that going on. You know, it's interesting in hiring investigative journalists, I always found, and this is, you know, among editors, this is so common a concept that it becomes almost trite. But the kind of person who makes a great investigative journalist is often a disputatious and difficult colleague. So you just have to live with that, right? Yeah, I was the head for a while of a group called Investigative Reporters and Editors, and all my heroes, the gods of the business, were members of this group. And they would come to the annual convention and be crabby and and demanding and horrible. I hated them all. No heroes. Yes, they find fault with everything. That's their job, after all. So, no, they're not very nice people. You know, I went to uh, school to Hunter with Jack Newfield. Do you know that name, guys? Everybody remember Jack Newfield? Oh, geez. Jack Newfield, one of the giants. Absolutely. He was. He was was always nice. That puts some cold water on what we've just heard. Exception that proves the rule. That's all. (laughs) Yep. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) The only nice investigative journalist we've ever known. Well, it's a time for rhubarb. Time for rhubarb. It is that season of the year. You know, my rhubarb plants are great. How are yours, Alan? Wonderful, wonderful. Roselle goes out there and cuts them out. You're supposed to cut the flower off the top of the rhubarb because otherwise it takes away from the stalk. So we have to be careful to do that. And that's very related to what we're here to talk about, which is the media. We're talking about people's personalities and their uh, the effect on the work. And, you know, there was an interesting example of that recently. There's a reporter for Fox News, which we rarely praise on this program, a, re- a reporter named Harris Faulkner. She's an African-American woman. She's a mom. And she did an interview with Donald Trump that has a lot of journalists talking because what she did in this 20-minute sit-down interview was – 
to put herself into the story. She talked about, in her interviewing with the president, she talked about how she, coming from where she is, looks at things differently than he does and calls him on using the word rioter. And she says, are you really the president? Are you the one who can bring us together? What do you think they need right now from you? It was extraordinary, but it does raise a question how much of the journalist herself and himself is appropriate to put into your work. Where, what's the right tone, the right place for your, your own personal feeling about this? Uh, Judy, you want to give us a shot on that first? You know, on that interview, the most interesting part of it was her questions. His answers were the usual kind of drivel. They didn't respond to her questions at all. There's that. So the questions were good. The fact that it was on Fox and she was asking them was also good. But, you know, it it depends. It it depends on what kind of a reporter you are, what you're trying to get. Um, I think the bottom line is you always have to be honest. I always found that the less uh, interviewer talks, the more responsive the person's going to be. But I, again, when you're dealing with someone like the president, who is very hard to interview well, you have to do what you can. I thought it was a good interview, but only for the questions, not for the answers. Rosemary, where are you on this? I don't think reporters should get involved in interviews. There's precious little time in an interview, and what you care about is the experiences and the opinions of the person you're talking to, not the reporter. And if you have a great question, but you get a mediocre or no or non-answer, that's not really a good question. It might be interesting to read it from the point of view of a journalist looking at how to frame questions. But in general, I don't. Beginning reporters who I deal a lot with are so nervous. They're so concerned about how they're behaving and how they're coming off in an interview that they frequently talk way too much about themselves. <laughs> the best well, interviewers I see talking about themselves. See, I see it a little bit differently. You know, there's an old saying, you got to give a little to get a little. And sometimes I find in my interviews, if I, you know, make it clear that I have some experience that has been embarrassing or something, it gets somebody like Governor Cuomo, who I often interview, to put out a little bit more than he would otherwise. You see what I'm saying here? Yes. It could be that it's just a different type of an interview that you're doing. You're you have a long form. Well, I guess it's kind of like uh, what she was doing, what Harris Faulkner did on Fox News. It's you, know, you have time with the governor. You're spending time. So you're talking to him about your own personal views and experiences and so on. And you, you think that helps it come out a bit, especially if it's embarrassing. So, well, let me try again, because I don't think an interview, while it sometimes sounds like a conversation, really is a conversation. It is a controlled displacement of information. And if you're talking about yourself, that's less that the other person is revealing. They draw you out. It's just like in a job interview when you try to get the boss talking about himself and the company. Then you're not on the spot to answer questions. So I think it's a trap to fall into. I I don't disagree that sometimes you offer a little talking to the guy from death row, and he goes, well, you don't think I'm guilty, do you? I mean, you can't just say That's not important. That's artificial. You have to give an answer like, I could never do what you did, but tell me about that. What was your problem? You have to immediately, I think, turn it back to the person you're talking to. The best question in an interview often is, what do you mean by that? And that's often what you can use if you're stalling and you don't know quite what the next question is, or just say, tell me more about that. Uh, One question I used to in an interview just kind of say, huh which would give me time because I was taking notes. The problem was Mario Cuomo, the current governor's father, when I once in my first big sit-down interview with him, and I said, huh, he said, what do you mean by huh? (laughs) (laughs) 
That that was Mario. Yeah. Hey, gang, I wonder if there's a difference between Rosemary's position, which I disagree with, of course, as a print reporter compared to what somebody like me would do as a on-air conversationalist. You know, I wholeheartedly agree with Rosemary. Well, of course you do, because I, I think part of it, though, is that Alan himself is a personality. He is of interest to listeners, mm-hmm. whereas I am not. Are you kidding? We get more mail about you than anybody else. <laughs> yes, Are you I'm kidding? Serious. Nope, serious. <laughs> oh, well. But young reporters especially, they'll go into an interview, and some of them think they're trying to make friends with the person they're interviewing. Yeah. They're talking about their kids or their, yeah. you know, where they went to school. They're wasting time. That's not what they're there for. Um, you need to establish some personal connection, but if you're talking too much, you're not doing your job. Mm-hmm. Well, the problem there is when you say too much, you know, the main thing to do is get the other person talking, the person you're interviewing. And so that's where you, Rosemary, and Judy and I disagree. I think it's certainly possible to inject yourself in order to get more material that you wouldn't get otherwise. That's my position. I'm sticking to it. And you're sticking to it. And anything is possible, but I've found that the best way to get someone talking is to get them talking about themselves. That's flattering. You're sitting there taking notes about what they think and feel. That is a super way to get them talking. The other technique is to say nothing, and people hate a vacuum, and they'll start filling up the vacuum. I know you can't do it on radio, but for a print reporter, you just say nothing, and the person will start talking. Yes, very powerful, silent. Actually, actually, you can do it on the radio. I've done it on the radio. Uh, you know, nature pours a vacuum, and the vacuum is when nobody's saying anything. And I think your point is well taken, that if, if you say nothing, even on the radio, you'll get something. Oh, Alan, I've never heard you be silent. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're making that up. If you would like to share your thoughts, media at WAMC.org, anything that you hear here, we'd love to hear from you, and uh, we will take your thoughts into consideration in the the, uh, topics that we bring up next time around. Uh, We need to say something about the effort by the government to enjoin, that is to stop distribution of John Bolton's book. This is an extraordinary situation. Of course, you have extensive excerpts being released in the press before the official publication date. But the question is, if the government affirms that, as it is at this point, that there are secrets, that there is top secret material that's being illegally divulged, are they on solid ground in saying a judge ought not to let this go out? Rosemary, you've taught some media law. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think it's a very, very slim to none chance that the government will prevail. What they're trying to do is say, We need prior restraint. This cannot come out. And American First Amendment law going back decades is that you can sue later if publication or broadcast causes harm. In this case, that has not happened. The prior restraint is considered a last resort. I don't know of any court cases where it was ever, ever, ever confirmed. And especially in this case, where the facts are contested, where Bolton's lawyers are saying, we entered into the arrangement for pre-publication review and were cleared. And only at that point, after we had done many weeks of editing and removal of material at the government's insistence, did the Justice Department come out and say, oh, never mind, there's some other stuff in here. And that's mm-hmm. what they're protesting. I, I just cannot see them prevailing, even if it goes to, guess what Alan is going to say, even if it goes to the Supreme Court if you're a textualist, if you can approve rights for gay workers not to be fired, you cannot approve prior restraint. It goes against so much law. 
Well, first of all, I think Rosemary's absolutely right where this particular case is going. First of all, you've got a massively unpopular president who's being ridiculed from one end of the country to the other, and his numbers keep going down. And if you think that the Supreme Court doesn't follow the election returns or what's going on, think again. I think that that's a real possibility. But you have John Roberts, who is an announced believer in presidential power and presidential prerogative. And when Roberts recently gave a lot of people hope that he would be a fair player, I suspect in something like this he would not. Although, you know, Rosemary's point is well taken. I don't think they're going to uphold this thing because it's already out there. Everybody has it. Everything's been said. Right. And speaking of stuff that's been said, one of the things that was revealed in the book is the uh, president saying that journalists ought to be executed, uh, that journalists are scumbags. Um, you know, this is <laughs> it's extraordinary, even hearing things from this president who we've gotten so accustomed to hearing from, hearing the notion that he believes journalists ought to be executed. Sounds like a dictator of the Philippines rather than the president of the United States. Uh, who is somebody he admires? Gotten, yes, that's true. We've gotten kind of inured to that. But here's another interesting element. You know, we were talking last week and the week before about the publication of Senator Tom Cotton's op-ed in The New York Times and the value or lack of there. The vice president, Mike Pence, had an op-ed published in The Wall Street Journal that in its own way was extraordinary. Pence, you know, is this mild-mannered guy, and there are those people who are, even among Republican circles, who are saying maybe the president should step aside. All we are saying is give Pence a chance. <laughs> but in this op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, the vice president suggests that the idea of a second wave of the coronavirus is a big media hoax. And he repeatedly attacked the media, that the media has been trying to scare Americans, quote, every step of the way. So should there be a controversy about the Wall Street Journal publishing this in as much as the coronavirus is projected to kill 200,000 people by October? That fact pattern is, isn't that kind of frightening enough? Would you have published the vice president's piece, Judy? Yeah, well, this is basic newspaper, newspapering skills. The problem with the piece was the fact that it wasn't vetted well. If you're going to make accusations against the media, you have to have specific examples. This is something that editors do. They go through and they challenge statements. And then typically the author will come back and then they will add to it and give greater context and give examples and the editors will challenge the facts. This is something newspaper editors do every day with every letter to the editor, every op-ed. You don't let them go in typically unread. People in a newspaper or any kind of media company has a responsibility to make sure what they're publishing has been vetted and, and edited and put into context. It takes another set of eyes. And in this case, the Wall Street Journal did not do enough work on that piece before they published it. They certainly had a right to publish it, but they did a poor job of editing it. Hmm. Alan, would you have published it if you were the editor of the Wall Street Journal opinion pages? Absolutely, I would have. You know, this business that we keep hearing from our fellow panelists, the liberal newspapers and others, and the Wall Street Journal, of course, isn't, should read and disagree with things within the piece. You know, I've been writing columns for a long, long time. I have never, I don't believe, ever had a newspaper come back and say, I want to challenge this, maybe one time. So, you know, I think the Wall Street Journal is a conservative voice, and the, their editorial board is particularly conservative. And I have a feeling that they are somewhat embarrassed by Trump. And therefore, the idea of building up Mike Pence is probably right on their doorstep.
Mm. Rosemary? Okay, so I am pairing what happened with the Pence editorial with the New York Times publication of an op-ed by Tom Cotton. And the same charges were levied against it, that they didn't vet it, that it was filled with factual errors. I've read both of the editorials. I don't get it. I, I think there's stuff in there that's wrong, but it's more like opinion wrong, not factual error, not a date or something you put your hand on. It's an abstract idea that I find wrong. And that's the whole idea of op-ed pages, that you put in opinion, even of people you disagree with, in fact, especially of people you disagree with. And I think as newspapers and other outlets now are looking at their editorial policies, and there's some sort of new procedure that we're supposed to be going through, which I do not fully get. Staffers protest so you don't run the piece. Don't get that. Don't understand it. Aren't we cutting out voices? Isn't this the same movement that we saw on campuses that if a speaker makes students uncomfortable, they should not be invited to campus to speak? I think that's a huge loss. I want to hear all the voices, even the ones who are absolutely and completely wrong, such as Pence. I want to compliment Rosemary and say that was a brilliant disquisition, and I agree with every word of it. Thank you. Well, I'm not so sure. I might be more on uh, Judy's side of this. You know, I agree that I would have published the Tom Cotton piece, though I think that, as we've said these last two weeks, they should have excised that which uh, was specifically not accurate in Cotton's piece. And in Pence's piece, what we would have done with someone other than the vice president, let's say it was an ordinary citizen writing this, we would say, give us specific examples. If you say the media is acting irresponsibly, cite some examples. There was not a single citation by this when the vice president said that this is fear-mongering, that the media has been trying to scare the Americans every step of the way. Give us at least some example. What was the fear-mongering that has been part of the media? You know, we used to complain about this a lot in this program, the very use of the word media. There's no such thing as media. You know, media is Colbert as well as WAMC. There's a, a lot that is media. But I think that the editors of the Wall Street Journal, of course, the vice president didn't write this. This is his staff. And so back and forth between editors and staff, there should have been greater attention. You know, hold the vice president's feet to the fire, make him say something to back up his assertions. In a situation where you've got 200,000 people likely to die before we're really into autumn, that's a matter that you shouldn't just let the vice president lie about. So let's have some attention to standards. But, you know, I, I hear your point, Rosemary, that you want to get a lot of voices. And it can't be just, you know, in this time of the response to the Black Lives Matter movement, we are particularly looking for more voices from the communities of color. So we should apply the same standards you're saying to that as to the vice president. I'm not sure that there's standards. I think there are ideas that we have. What you just said right now is fear-mongering, that there's going to be 200,000 deaths by September. The vice president would dispute that. It could change tomorrow, don't you know? The weather could change, and it could all disappear. So, I, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> you know, but that's not factual. My, I mean, the 200,000 is the government's own projection, his government. Well, so. Yeah, you, I mean, you could say that, but you didn't just then. You said it as a fact, as a statement, and that makes people afraid. That's It's not fear-mongering, though. It's fact. Well, okay, so see, that's the debate. That's the debate between the politicians who would yeah. say, you're panicking people, let's give them hope. Let's say, we've done great, we've already knocked down a whole lot of possible deaths, and its deaths are declining in, in the United States overall. It, it's all spin. It's not... 
disputing hard facts, which is why the editorial pages, I think, are different than news stories. We, we didn't interview Pence. We gave him space to state his piece. Same with Cotton, who was arguing that the protesters were Antifa, which we don't know. It looks like, mostly like they're um, white supremacists. But that, that was his view. And the government also stated that the government in the form of Trump stated that. Had you said back this up with the source, he would have said the president of the United States, and we'd still be in the same place. It seems that we are blocking out the voices of people we don't like. It's Tom Cotton and Pence. Notice a theme there? They're Trump administrators. But wait, what if, what if, Rosemary, to go back to our previous conversation, you interviewed the vice president for the news section and asked him a question, and he said the same damn thing he said in that piece. You'd put it in, wouldn't you? You wouldn't say, we're not putting it in. Oh, I wouldn't put it in. But, you know, if you're interviewing, you, you would say, like, give me an example of what you mean, or can you back that up with anything, or is and that just your opinion? Or you'd even it. write it. He offered, the vice president could offer no specific examples. Yeah, it does make for better journalism when you have a chance to actually hold people's feet to the fire. There are limitations to the sort of unfettered op-ed, I guess, is the value there. You know, unfettered material or untethered material, I guess, that doesn't have a response is one of the things that people have been talking about social media being engaged in. The increasing efforts, including on the part of the Trump administration, to make social media platforms be responsible for the material they publish. Here's a note about a Facebook post, and we've seen a lot of these things, claiming that, for example, wearing masks for the coronavirus is dangerous because they decrease oxygen intake. A false post, experts say. A public movement, this post saying, take it off. But if it is a false post, if it actually is posing a danger because claiming that, well, a face mask can decrease oxygen intake, increase toxin inhalation, that's nonsense, it turns out. Should Facebook be held to account? Should Facebook be in the position of having to, um, shouldn't they be responsible for the material they publish if, in fact, it's not true, if it's dangerous? Judy, why don't you start us on this? Right. Should they be moderating their content is one question. And the other question is, should they be held civilly liable for it if it's, it's incorrect and it causes damages? Can we go to court and sue them for, you know, and, and being responsible for massive infections, for example? It goes back to the old federal law that we're discussing, you know, changing to uh, the Section 230 is, that, is mm -hmm. trying to, to change that. And it's with these Facebook posts, the, the fact-checking sites are so overwhelmed with the virus-related this that they don't have time to keep up. And so you have to do your own fact-checking, and you have to call people out on their own. So our individual army cannot fix this. Facebook created the platform. They created the monster. I think they are responsible for um, somehow corralling it. Twitter's trying to do it a little bit, but both of them are doing a little bit. They're throwing one shell back into the ocean when there's you know a trillion on the shore. Any other thoughts on this? Well, Zuckerberg is behaving so badly that uh, I, I have begun to rethink this. I originally thought, no, let it just be a free and open forum and you, you moderate yourself. You figure out what's good and what's bad. But we saw after the election and, and mostly since when Zuckerberg is refusing to take false political advertising off, they refuse to take down um, a doctored video of Nancy Pelosi as one example. Plus, he is more and more becoming aligned openly with Trump. 
I mean, what the heck is that? And so I've become more open to the idea that they need to be responsible. And I'm also aware that to actually moderate that site, they need actual editors. So maybe they'll hire some journalists and pay back some of the business that they've taken away from the legitimate press. How do you make it happen? How do you make it happen? Well, what about what Judy referred to, Section 230 of the Communications Act, where they are held civilly liable? What about that? What about that? It ain't going to happen. Too many people use Facebook. Too many people love Facebook. You know, if you're a politician and you start going after a Facebook, you create a lot of problems for yourself. I I just don't see it happening. I don't know. I think a lot of people like me love Facebook and use it all the time, but also see the potential for problems and thoughtful legislation that would aim at accuracy and getting out fake and Russian propaganda would be well taken. I think the time is coming again. Zuckerberg is doing nothing to endear himself to legislators or to the public. I agree. All right. Final topic for the day is this one. A number of newspapers around the country have published mugshot galleries, galleries of of people who have been accused of crimes. And now a number of papers are stopping the publication down in Florida, where uh, Rosemary used to work as an editor at the Orlando Sentinel, the South Florida Sun Sentinel have done the same. They've, They've dropped these galleries. These have been very popular in a lot of media. Why is it that the mugshots of crime suspects shouldn't be carried by the digital sites of these newspapers? What's the argument there? My belief was that when you run a mugshot of somebody being arrested, they actually haven't been convicted yet. And uh, certainly um, we report that. We report their name and we put it in the paper. But mugshot galleries are are popular with newspaper websites because they generate a ton of traffic. And it's important information. But I always have believed that because we could not get mugshots at the federal level, very rarely can you get someone who's been accused of a federal crime, their mugshot. And most of those are white. And a lot of the mugshots that a local newspaper run are people of color. And I thought that that disproportionately created an image in the community of people of color. And the cumulative impact, I thought, was very negative. That's Judy Patrick of the New York Press Association. In the interest of time, we lose Rosemary Mayo here. Sorry, Rosemary, next week. (laughs) Alan Chartok, the CEO of Northeast Public Radio. We'll always have time for more from Alan, I promise. I'm Rex Smith. (laughs) Thanks for joining us. Thanks to our producer, Dave Gustine. We'll see you next week on The Media Project. At a living wage, they joined with other actors upon a living stage. Now newspaper men are such interesting people. When they know they've got a people's fight to wage, tingling-ling newspaper guild, got a free new world to build. Meet the people, that's a thrill. The Media Project is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. Alan Shartok is CEO of WAMC, professor emeritus at the State University of New York, commentator, columnist, and author. Rex Smith is editor-at-large of the Times Union. Judy Patrick is the vice president for editorial development for the New York Press Association. And Rosemary Armeo is an investigative journalist and former chair of the Department of Journalism at the University at Albany. You can listen to or podcast The Media Project anytime at wamc.org or just download the WAMC app for your iPhone or Android at the Play Store today. Thanks for listening. such interesting people. It could be prostitution, I don't know. Tingling-a-ling, circulation, tingling-a-ling, advertising. Get those readers, get that payoff. What a headache, what a mess. Oh, publishers are such interesting people. Let's give free cheers for freedom of the press.